Hi, listeners. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to share an update about the show. Next week's episode will be the series finale of Crimes of Passion. For the past three and a half years, it has been my absolute pleasure to bring you these compelling stories each week, and I can't tell you how much it has meant to me and the team behind the scenes to have your support. I am extremely proud of our series and the last two episodes we have for you. So rather than say goodbye right now, I say we celebrate Crimes of Passion with an episode many people have asked for. Enjoy part one of our deep dive into the Lacey Peterson case, and we'll be back next week with part two, the final episode of Crimes of Passion. On March 19th, 2003, President George W. Bush delivers a televised address to the nation. In a grave tone, he tells Americans that U.S. and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to save the world from grave danger. It's a declaration of war, justified by baseless claims that Iraq's government is harboring weapons of mass destruction. The conflict will continue for nearly 10 years, costing the United States almost $1.7 trillion and killing hundreds of thousands of people. But at the time of the announcement, there's only one question on everyone's lips. What happened to Lacey Peterson? Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is the first in a two-part, 20-year retrospective on one of the most infamous criminal cases in American history, the murder of Lacey Peterson. On Christmas Eve 2002, the mother-to-be vanished from Modesto, California. The news shocked family, friends, and, in time, the entire country, as the mystery became tabloid fodder. Next time, we'll discuss the winding investigation and the case's dramatic conclusion in court. We'll also examine the ongoing battle to try and get Lacey's husband, Scott Peterson, another trial. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Scott Peterson's feet hit the floor around 8 a.m. 
Lacey's already awake downstairs, soaking French toast in Grand Marnier. When Scott joins her in the kitchen, he pours himself a bowl of cereal. Lacey's already had one. These days, she needs to eat immediately after waking up or she'll get nauseous, one of the joys of being eight months pregnant. Lacey and Scott are hosting a Christmas brunch tomorrow, and there's a lot to do between now and then. Errands to run, gifts to buy. Plus, they're supposed to be at Lacey's parents' house by 6 p.m. for Christmas Eve dinner. Around 9 that morning, Lacey's shuffling around the house, doing some light chores, and watching her favorite show, Martha Stewart Living. Scott catches some of the program. It's a holiday episode. Martha and her guests are making cookies and talking about meringue. Scott says goodbye before the show ends. As he heads out the door, Lacey's mopping the floors, despite the fact that their newly hired cleaner came just a few days ago. She's wearing a plain white, long-sleeved shirt and a pair of black maternity pants, dressed up with a diamond necklace, diamond earrings, and a gold and diamond watch to boot. All that's missing is her wedding ring. It's currently at the jeweler's getting outfitted with some of her grandmother's stones, part of Scott's Christmas present to her this year. After her husband leaves, Lacey plans to take Mackenzie, their golden retriever, out for a walk. Then she's going to run to the grocery store to pick up a few things and bake some gingerbread cookies for dinner tonight. Scott, on the other hand, is off to play golf. Or at least he was hoping to. Now that he's outside, he's thinking it might be a little too cold. So he decides to go fishing instead. He hops in his truck, a four-door Ford F-150, and drives to pick up the boat he bought two weeks ago. It's sitting in his rented warehouse, which also doubles as his office. Scott's a salesman and a manager for a fertilizer company called Tradecorp. He doesn't share the space with anyone else, so he's alone when he arrives. The way he's acting, you wouldn't know he's on a tight schedule. He seems like he has nowhere to be, he takes his time checking his email, then the faxes. He sends a note to his boss in Portugal, wishing him a happy holiday. And he assembles a new woodworking tool he's been meaning to get around to. Eventually, he hitches his boat to his truck and leaves. He makes it to the Berkeley Marina at 12.54 p.m. A few fishermen watch Scott struggle to launch his boat, which is a little embarrassing. But Scott just laughs it off. He's not one to lose his cool. Once he's on the water, he travels north towards San Pablo Bay. He doesn't have a destination in mind, he's just meandering. After a while, he slows down near a small island, covered in a thin layer of trash. A sign nearby reads, no landing. Here, Scott does some trolling, a method of fishing where you drop lines of various lengths into the water to get at the different depths. Today, He's hoping to catch some sturgeon. After about an hour and a half, clouds roll in and it starts to rain. Scott decides to head back to the marina. It turns out the weather's a blessing in disguise. He realizes he's running late. Lacey asked him to pick up a Christmas gift basket by 3 p.m. But Scott doesn't run the errand on his way home. Instead, he stops to get $13 worth of gas, less than half a tank. 
He also makes four phone calls, one to his father-in-law, another to a friend, and the last two to his wife. Lacey doesn't pick up the home phone or her cell, so Scott leaves voicemails on both answering machines. He arrives back home around 4.45 p.m., backing his truck into the driveway next to Lacey's Land Rover. He walks around their fenced-in backyard, surprised to find Mackenzie, the golden retriever, running around with a leash still attached to her collar. It's filthy. Scott takes the lead off and heads in through the unlocked back door. All the lights are out and the blinds are drawn. Lacey's car may be parked in the driveway, but she's definitely not home. Scott assumes she went over to her parents' house early to help them prep for dinner. He needs to be there himself in about an hour. Before he does anything else, Scott stops in the kitchen. He grabs a slice of leftover pizza, eats it with some ranch dressing, and washes it down with a glass of milk. From there, he changes out of his clothes, which are still wet from the ocean water and rain. He takes a bunch of dirty towels from the washing machine, stacks them on top, and tosses his own clothes inside. Then he hops in the shower. By the time he's finished and dressed for dinner, it's 5.15, and Lacey still hasn't returned his calls. He phones Lacey's mom and asks if she's heard from her daughter, but Sharon claims she hasn't seen or spoken to Lacey all day. After Scott tells her about finding Mackenzie in the backyard with the leash still on, panic starts to set in, especially when Scott tells his mother-in-law, in no uncertain terms, Lacey is missing. Sharon tells Scott to reach out to friends to see if maybe they've heard from her. When he calls back to report that they haven't, Sharon tells him to try the neighbors, but they haven't seen Lacey either. So at 5.47 p.m., Lacey's stepfather, Ron Gransky, calls 911 and reports Lacey's disappearance to police. Because she's pregnant, authorities respond more urgently than they might have otherwise. And it's a good thing they do, because an hour after Ron places that call, an investigator contacts a homicide detective. Aside from some unusual details at Scott and Lacey's house, he's acting on instinct, a terrible sinking feeling deep in his gut. Before the day is over, homicide detective Al Brocchini gets a similar feeling while interviewing Scott Peterson. Scott gives the detective a version of events nearly identical to the one we just gave you. For obvious reasons, his account has been called into question. Years later, in November 2004, a California court will convict Scott of murdering his wife, Lacey, in the first degree, along with his son-to-be, Connor, in the second. A jury recommends the punishment, and a judge agrees. Scott is sentenced to death. But 20 years after Lacey Peterson disappeared, we still can't say for sure what really happened at 523 Covina Avenue on Christmas Eve, 2002. All we have is Scott's account. For all we know, Lacey's side of the story was taken away from her long before that day even began. Coming up, Lacey and Scott meet for the first time. 
Hey, podcast fans, it's Lainey from Crimes of Passion. Did you know I host another podcast? It's called True Crime Cases with Lainey, and it takes a deeper look at the life and crimes of some of the most evil minds in history. If you enjoy the in-depth research and storytelling of Crimes of Passion, you'll love True Crime Cases with Lainey. Hey, we may even have a special guest stop by from time to time. Follow True Crime Cases with Lainey wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. It's August 9th, 1997, the day Lacey Rocha will become Lacey Peterson. She and Scott have chosen Sycamore Mineral Springs in San Luis Obispo as their wedding's location. The resort's tucked away in the hills of the California coast. The expansive grounds are lined with sycamores, oak trees, and tropical plants. Draped white fabric and colorful bouquets have been added for the occasion. At 22 years old, Lacey walks down the aisle wearing a ball gown style dress, sleeveless with a square cut top. A white headpiece rests on her hair like a crown, cascading into a large flowing veil. Scott waits for her at the altar, wearing his signature smile and black tailed tuxedo, accented with a white vest and bow tie. The event's traditional, but also personal. During the reception, Scott raises a glass of champagne and toasts Lacey's parents, Sharon and Ron. He thanks them for Lacey, who he calls their perfect daughter. In retrospect, that seems important. In accounts of Scott and Lacey's relationship, the word perfect comes up a lot. Perfect together, perfect marriage, perfect gentlemen. Before Christmas Eve 2002, everyone describes the pair as happy and hopelessly in love. Lacey's stepfather, Ron, once said his biggest concern about Scott was that he was too helpful. Scott did too much work around the house, and Ron worried that, if he continued, Sharon might expect more from him. Which is all to say... Many viewed Scott and Lacey's relationship through an idealistic, all-American lens, and this narrative likely started with Lacey's own account of the first time she laid eyes on Scott. It sounds like the beginning of a fairy tale. She met Scott two years before their wedding. Before ever going on a real date with him, Lacey told her mom she'd met the man she was going to spend the rest of her life with. At 20 years old, she just knew it in her bones. The first meeting happened in 1995 at the Pacific Cafe, a restaurant where Scott worked as a server. Both he and Lacey were college students at California Polytechnic State University, or Cal Poly for short. Scott was charming, polite, confident, tall. He actually listened when Lacey spoke, and from their limited conversations, she could tell he had a bright vision for his future. After a few casual run-ins, Lacey wrote down her phone number on a slip of paper and asked a friend to give it to Scott. But when the friend passed it along, Scott apparently threw the paper in the garbage. He assumed it was some kind of practical joke. When he finally realized it wasn't, he dove back into the trash to retrieve it. Their first date wasn't the romantic excursion either of them hoped it would be. Scott took Lacey deep-sea fishing. Before the end of the trip, Lacey got violently seasick. 
The experience didn't end their relationship, but she told Scott she would never step foot on a boat again. A few weeks later, Scott met Lacey's mom. The trio went to dinner at the Pacific Cafe. When they arrived, Scott had two bouquets of roses waiting for them on the table, white for Sharon and red for Lacey. By December, Lacey moved into Scott's apartment. For Christmas, she surprised him with a furry present, a golden retriever puppy named Mackenzie. A few months later, she graduated with a degree in ornamental horticulture. Although Scott was older, Lacey finished school first. That's because Scott's college experience took him on some detours. He started at Arizona State playing on the golf team, but after poor to middling performance, he transferred to a local junior college for a stint before finally landing at Cal Poly, where he studied agriculture. Scott's actually still in school as he gives that toast on their wedding day. After the ceremony ends, Scott and Lacey spend their first few months as husband and wife long distance. Scott hurries to finish the degree while Lacey takes a job in Prunedale, 130 miles away. Eventually, they move back in together and become business partners. They open a restaurant in the same town they went to school, a sports bar with a kitchen called The Shack. By all accounts, it's a success, a popular spot for college kids and locals to grab a burger and a beer. But restaurants are a lot of work. Lacey and Scott struggle to find reliable help. They pour so much time and energy into that place that two years later, they decide to call it quits and sell. In October of 2000, they move to Modesto, Lacey's hometown, to buy a house and start a family. They find a single-story, three-bedroom ranch in a quiet, tree-lined, family-friendly neighborhood. Picture it. Manicured lawns, big garages, kids playing in the street. Scott puts a lot of work into the home. He retiles floors, adds a swimming pool, and installs a brick barbecue pit. He's also quick to help neighbors with chores. See... Modesto is the kind of place where neighbors actually invite each other over for dinner. It's perfect for Scott and Lacey. Lacey especially loves to entertain, along with doing yoga, baking, enjoying good food, and good wine. She's the kind of person who spends as much time wrapping a gift as they do picking it out in the first place. As you've probably already guessed, she idolizes Martha Stewart. Her whole life, Lacey's always been two things, popular and talkative. Growing up, her family nicknamed her Jabberjaws. In high school, she joined cheerleading and played softball and basketball. She was involved in countless clubs and extracurricular activities. Cal Poly named her Outstanding Freshman of the Year in part because she knew so many people. She's also used to getting her way. According to friends, she wears the pants in the marriage. At parties, she delegates while Scott obediently follows directions. They moved to Modesto in the first place to be closer to her family. Scott doesn't see it as their final destination though. He wants to move back to San Luis Obispo and buy an olive ranch one day. Still, he doesn't mind selling fertilizer in the meantime. The pay is decent, and Lacey's job as a substitute teacher supplements his income. 
He has time to do all the things he loves, fishing, hunting, golfing, and smoking cigars. When he's not traveling for work, he and Lacey often go on lavish vacations. Yet, in many ways, it feels like he's living his wife's dream, not necessarily his own. And though Lacey and Scott present a shiny, charming veneer to the rest of the world, their day-to-day isn't all champagne and roses. In fact, their life is only possible thanks to some outside support. In particular, from Scott's parents. Because before he and Lacey moved to Modesto, the elder Petersons made Scott a partner in his father's business, expecting their son to take it over. But pretty much as soon as he could, Scott bought his dad out of the company and sold it for a quick profit. He didn't handle money well. By the time he and Lacey wanted to buy a house, most of the funds were already gone and they couldn't afford anything in the right area. His parents clearly didn't hold a grudge against him for selling the company because they gave him an incredibly generous gift after that, to the tune of $30,000. And that's not all. When Scott wanted to become a member of the Del Rio Country Club, his parents were the ones who paid the $23,000 admission fee. By 2002, Scott's earning about $5,000 a month. The couple spends almost all of it. Scott, more than Lacey. He pays $390 in monthly dues to the country club. Then, of course, there's the mortgage, the car payments, the renovations. On top of that, there are rounds of golf, utilities, and phone bills to pay. There are groceries, alcohol, dining out. The list goes on and on. By the spring of that year, Scott and Lacey are just barely living within their means. And yet, with only about $2,000 in savings, they decide to take the next step in their relationship, parenthood. Now, Scott's been hesitant about the idea of having children in the past, but he's come around. Lacey, on the other hand, has always wanted kids, even though she knows it might be difficult to get pregnant. When Lacey was just a girl, doctors found an eight-pound tumor in her lower abdomen. To remove it, they needed to take out one of her fallopian tubes as well. So there's some uncertainty around whether she can have kids. But before the summer begins, Lacey takes a pregnancy test and the result comes back positive. When they share the news with their families, everyone's thrilled. And by all accounts, Scott and Lacey are too. They're excited about what the future has in store for them. Scott's friend, Greg Reed, lives in their neighborhood. He and his wife, Kristen, also get pregnant around the same time. The fathers-to-be bond over their shared experiences. Come fall, Lacey decides not to return to work as a substitute teacher. She and Scott start to build out a nursery. Once they find out they're having a boy, they settle on a nautical theme. They paint the walls blue and hang a life preserver over the crib with the words, Welcome aboard, scrawled across the front. By the time the holidays arrive, they have chosen a name for their baby boy, Connor. And two weeks before Christmas, they go to one of their favorite stores, Barnes & Noble, and pick out children's books in anticipation. Doctors say Connor's due date is February 10th, just before Valentine's Day. 
But Scott and Lacey Peterson will never spend February 10th in the hospital, eagerly awaiting the birth of their first child. Instead, Lacey and Connor's bodies will be drifting somewhere in the tides of the San Francisco Bay. And Scott will spend the night wrapped in the arms of another woman. Coming up, the aftermath of Lacey's disappearance. Now, back to the story. The first inconsistency in Scott Peterson's version of events happens before anyone calls 911 on the day his wife disappeared. It's 5.30 p.m., less than an hour after Scott returned from his fishing trip. It's been just minutes since he stepped out of the shower and got dressed for the Christmas Eve dinner at Lacey's parents' house. Her mom, Sharon, told Scott to ask the neighbors if they've seen or heard from Lacey, which is why he's ended up on Amy Krigbaum's doorstep. Amy lives across the street from the Petersons. When she looks through her front windows, she can see straight into their home. She watched Scott back his truck into their driveway just a while ago. The maneuver stuck out to her because he usually didn't bother backing in. According to Amy, Scott appears nervous when he arrives. He tells her about Lacey, how he hasn't been able to get in touch with her. He wonders if Amy's seen his wife. Amy hasn't. In fact, she assumed they were on vacation or something since the blinds have been drawn all day. Nothing he says raises any major red flags. Not in the moment, anyway. But in hindsight, one comment seems pretty odd. Scott says he spent the day golfing. He makes no mention of fishing. Minutes after he speaks to Amy, Lacey's stepfather, Ron, reports Lacey missing to police. Shortly after that, Scott speaks to Sharon on the phone again. He says he's at Dry Creek Park near the house looking for Lacey. She often goes there to walk Mackenzie. But when Sharon and others go to Dry Creek to join in the search, Scott's nowhere in sight. He arrives after they do in a daze and is unable to look Sharon in the eyes. Authorities join Lacey's family in the park and ask Ron how he thinks Scott spent the day. Ron matter-of-factly replies, golfing. Over the course of multiple conversations, Scott failed to mention his spur-of-the-moment fishing trip. Meanwhile, back at 523 Covina Avenue, investigators scour Scott and Lacey's home for clues. The house is clean, but they do make note of more than a few unusual details. Like the rug outside on the porch, it looks bunched up as if someone dragged something heavy across it while going inside. There are two mops leaning near the side entrance of the house next to a bucket that's still wet. There's also an open pocket knife on a desk in a spare room. A duffel bag with clothes that are spilling out onto the floor. Another duffel bag that seems like it fell from a closet shelf. One detective notes that Scott and Lacey's bed is made, but there's an imprint on the comforter near the foot. It looks like a body was lying there. Someone who was about five foot one. Lacey's height exactly. In the kitchen, there's a box of pizza and a bottle of ranch dressing sitting out on the counter, which fits Scott's version of events. 
but next to the box, there's a phone book and it's open to a full-page advertisement for a criminal defense lawyer who, among other things, specializes in murder. Now, Scott's a hunter, so detectives aren't too surprised that he owns guns. Scott says he has eight in total, ranging from handguns to 20-gauge semi-automatics. Apparently, he used to have nine, but one was stolen years ago. He claims he hasn't shot any of them since a pheasant hunting trip back in November. Before anyone asks for an alibi, Scott is quick to offer up a time-stamped receipt from the Berkeley Marina, showing that he did, in fact, arrive there at 12.54 p.m. But one of the detectives happens to be an avid fisherman, and he's immediately wary of Scott's story about that afternoon. Initially, when asked what kind of fish he was looking for, Scott ignores the question. Eventually, he says he was trolling for sturgeon, which, if true, means he wasn't a very knowledgeable fisherman. Technically, it would have been illegal for him to troll for sturgeon. It wasn't even the right season for the fish. Not to mention he left his saltwater lures in his truck. Detectives later find them there, still in their packaging. Perhaps most damning of all, when police speak to a boat patrol officer at the marina, they say it definitely did not rain on Christmas Eve. Around 1.30 a.m. on Christmas Day, Scott finishes his taped interview with officials. For the most part, he's cooperative. He agrees to take a polygraph test to rule him out as a suspect. But his behavior is a little too casual for some investigators. Detective Brocchini writes down the words, bored, tired, and devoid of urgency. Before he leaves the Modesto police station, Scott asks Brocchini to recommend a good grief counseling service for himself and Lacey's family. It was an unusual statement from someone who, theoretically, should be expecting his wife to return any second now. Scott arrives back home around 4 a.m., he turns down an offer to be with Lacey's family who are gathered together, shaken, terrified, and desperately trying to figure out what to do next. At this point, Lacey's friends and family don't share the investigator's suspicions about Scott. Local newspapers churn out Christmas morning headlines like, Woman vanishes on walk, police start widespread search, and Scott's in-laws believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that he would never lay a finger on Lacey. This remains true, even as on Christmas Day, Scott tells the Modesto Police Department that he's no longer willing to participate in a polygraph exam. His father apparently advised him against it. It remains true, even when Scott asks detectives if they've tried using cadaver dogs to find his wife, only 24 hours after she went missing. Instead, the Petersons' neighbors feel sympathy for Scott as they drive past the small three-bedroom ranch, now cordoned off with yellow crime scene tape. Just before noon on Christmas, detectives knock on one of those neighbors' doors, Karen Service. She lives down the street from Scott and Lacey, and she saw something unusual on the morning in question. Shortly after 10 a.m. on Christmas Eve, Karen hopped in her car to run an errand, while backing out of her driveway, she spotted the Peterson's dog, Mackenzie, roaming the street alone. No one was walking her, her leash dragged on the ground. 
Assuming the golden retriever had accidentally escaped, Karen got out of her car, grabbed the dirty leash, and walked Mackenzie over to the Petersons. When she arrived, Lacey's car was parked in the driveway. It seemed like no one was home, so Karen walked around to the side gate, which was unlocked, and left the dog in the fenced-in backyard. She saw no signs of a struggle at the house, but Mackenzie's leash was so filthy that Karen immediately washed her hands afterward. She ran her errand and returned home roughly six hours later, around 4 p.m. That was before Scott came back from his alleged fishing trip. Later, around 8.30, Karen received a call from Scott saying Lacey was missing. This account suggests that Lacey may have gone on a walk and never returned for whatever reason, and it's a version of events that seems to be corroborated by other witness statements the very next day. On December 26th, investigators begin surveilling Scott's warehouse, though their list of suspects mostly includes local sex offenders and individuals with prior offenses. Multiple witnesses come forward saying they saw a pregnant woman walking her dog in the area the morning Lacey disappeared. One of these witnesses claims the woman was flanked by two men, one wearing a beanie cap who looked angry. The accounts give credence to an existing theory. Something happened to Lacey on her morning walk. Maybe it was a random attack. Maybe someone noticed the diamonds and gold she was wearing and tried to rob her. According to Lacey's friends and family, if that happened, she almost certainly would have resisted, even in her pregnant state. At the same time, those closest to her question the notion that she ever went on a walk to begin with. This includes one of Lacey's best friends, Stacy, and her mom, Sharon. Apparently, Lacey stopped walking Mackenzie as part of her morning routine. Her yoga instructor and obstetrician advised against overexerting herself, at least until the baby came. By December 28th, Lacey's been missing for four days. Authorities have conducted grid searches, brought in helicopters, and bloodhounds. Hundreds, if not thousands of volunteers have come out to help look. Officials have thrown everything and the kitchen sink at Lacey's case and still come up short. That day... They also start searching the Berkeley Marina. In time, more media outlets pick up Lacey's story. It catches fire and coverage spreads across the country. To this day, no one's sure why this happens. Unfortunately, disappearances aren't unique. In the United States, someone goes missing roughly once every minute, but more likely than not, the attention is, in part, because of a slow post-holiday news cycle. The spotlight turns out to be a double-edged sword. It raises awareness, but swarms of reporters are now parked outside 523 Covina Avenue around the clock. Neighbors struggle to get to their houses. The Petersons' loved ones lose all semblance of privacy as hungry journalists trip over themselves to get the latest scoop. Everyone with a connection to Lacey is placed under a microscope, especially Scott. Reporters begin to comment on his behavior. In their minds, he's been elusive, camera shy. His stoicism seems at odds with Lacey's family, who regularly deliver tearful pleas to the public. On the other hand, Scott seems borderline emotionless, entirely disinterested in finding his wife, 
so media outlets are quick to speculate about his guilt. Now, it's not necessarily a fair portrayal, as everyone grieves differently, but that doesn't change the growing sense of public distrust when it comes to Scott. And once that ball starts rolling downhill, it's impossible to stop. On New Year's Eve 2002, Lacey's family holds a candlelit vigil in Modesto's East La Loma Park. More than a thousand people attend. Sharon Rocha stands on a makeshift stage in front of dozens of satellite news trucks and reporters. She begs the crowd not to give up on looking for her daughter. Other family members and friends deliver remarks too, along with a detective working Lacey's case. Those that don't speak stand close by to offer their support, except for Scott. He avoids the spotlight entirely. He doesn't step foot on the stage, let alone speak. And at the stroke of midnight, he steps away to take a private phone call. No one knows who he speaks to. Not yet. Photographs of Scott at the vigil appear in newspapers across the US the next day. They show him smiling, laughing, chatting with friends. His demeanor adds fuel to a growing fire. The public outcry against Scott is deafening. Without evidence, many Americans begin to assume his guilt. But Scott still has supporters across the country and in his family. Five days later on January 5th, Sharon Rocha appears on Fox News's On the Record with Greta Van Susteren. She decries the accusations being hurled at her son-in-law, saying, quote, If you knew Scott, you wouldn't have any doubts. If you saw the way the two of them are together, I mean, I've never even known the two of them to have an argument or harsh words with each other. They've just always been a team. Lacey's mother is adamant about Scott's innocence. The entire Rocha family is. But just a few weeks later, their stance takes a complete 180. On January 24th, 2003, a 28-year-old woman steps out in front of news cameras at a press conference. She's blonde, thin, and wearing a suit with a ribbon pinned to her lapel in honor of Lacey. Members of law enforcement line up behind her. Camera bulbs flash. Her hands shake as she reads a prepared statement. Her name is Amber Frey. For the past few weeks, she's been secretly working with the Modesto Police Department, recording phone conversations for detectives. Her undercover work began when she first found out her boyfriend, Scott Peterson, was married, and his wife, Lacey, was missing. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next week with another episode. For more information on the murder of Lacey Peterson amongst the many sources we used, we found a deadly game by Catherine Cryer extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Brawrow. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. 
This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Connor Sampson, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, produced by Travis Clark, and sound designed by Scott Stronick. I'm your host, Lainey Hobbs. Thank you so much for listening to Crimes of Passion. We'll see you next week as we wrap up the Lacey Peterson case in our series finale. 